wouldn't it be dreadful if we would always stay the same? If there could be no changes uh, in our lives made as we, uh, as uh, as God uh, works in us and and uh, wants to change us uh, from glory to glory, if that's uh, into His image. And, and so I'm I'm delighted uh, for this this matter of being changed. Um, I, I find that uh, uh, important to me. Let me begin by saying that I have appreciated your receptivity to the Word in the past number of evenings. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, inspires me to keep on preaching is when uh, I see the light go on in your eyes uh, from time to time and know that uh, you had some kind of aha moment uh, and and, and you just, you know, uh, uh, laid hold of some, some truth that was important to you. That, uh, that, that inspires me, and that, that uh, I appreciate uh, that that can happen in a service like this. Let me also uh, thank you for your prayers. Um, and uh, I also sense that some of you have been faithful in reading the, the passages that uh, we're going to be looking at uh, for the evening. And uh, I find that important because your heart warms up to the passage and you don't come here cold. And so uh, I uh, appreciate uh, observing that uh, in you here as a congregation. <clears throat> I'm certainly aware of the uh, fact that this passage that we're looking at tonight, uh, that we're, t- could be somewhat impersonal. But it, it certainly is practical, and we are in the practical part of the book of Romans. It speaks to us where we really live, where the rubber sort of hits the road. Uh, and uh, it has to do with our practical daily lives to, uh, uh, as it relates to our relationships. And so last night we talked about our relationship uh, with, uh, with the body of Christ. And this evening I'm going to... Uh, speak about our relationship with those that are without, relating to those that are without. So this has to do with, uh, with our relationships and our, our practical daily lives, uh, to a great extent, consists of relationships. Uh, relationships within the church, within the body of Christ, uh, as, uh, especially as we noted last night in verses 9 to 13. Uh, relationships with those without that uh, our non-Christian neighbors and friends, which we're going to be looking at in a moment, our relationships with uh, govern- governmental authority. You know, the, uh, the, the Christians' relationship with governmental authorities was especially pertinent to the Christians living in the city of Rome. Where the central government of the of the Roman Empire was located, I, I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit doesn't let any area of our lives and relationships unaddressed in His Word, and so uh, I, I'm grateful for that. So, beginning this evening in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 14, Paul begins to address and to speak to our relationship. With those, to those that are what I, without. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to see where Paul uh, shifts in, in Romans chapter 12, but uh, it seems that in verse 14, 
uh, it seems improper to think that he might be address, continuing to address uh, the, the, the members of the church because he says, bless them that persecute you. And I, <laughs> I, I trust that we're not persecuting each other. So it seems to me, at least in verse 14, uh, he begins to address uh, our relationship with those that are without it, as I have called it. And so uh, I'd like to read this passage. I'm just going to read the, the rest of Romans 12 here uh, before we go into uh, Romans chapter 13. So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, would you stand with me as with, uh, to the reading of the Word? Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Mentions is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. Well, it seems to me that in this passage, the Apostle Paul addresses and speaks to us how to relate to our non-Christian friends and neighbors around us. Uh, we, we believe, and we, we talked about that the other night, that we believe that as followers of Christ, we could live differently than the non-Christian world around us. We, live, we believe that there should be a distinction, this distinct fundamental difference between the values and the lifestyle of us as Christians and our, unsa- and our unsaved friends and neighbors. This doesn't mean, however, that we should live antagonistically with our non-Christian neighbors. Uh, you know, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, that we should pray for those who rule over us in the secular world so that we could live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and all honesty. Uh, in, if, you, if you check the context of that uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, the, uh, the purpose of that, the purpose of praying for a quiet and peaceable life uh, is not so that we can live a life of ease but so, so that we can share the gospel with the lost around us. Because it's immediately after he says that, it, it, he says it's God's will that all men be saved. And so I take it that in that context, the, uh, that, that Paul is thinking of, of, the, uh, of the need and, and, and using uh, that to, to uh, uh, communicate and to share with the gospel with our, uh, with our non-Christian neighbors and friends. Uh, I, I believe this means that we should uh, uh, live in peace with our non-Christian neighbors and be a witness for Christ to them. Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, how to do that? And 
Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, speaks of the need to be wise as servants, serpents and harmless as doves. I've been thinking about that a lot in the, uh, the last little while. Um, and it seems to me that here in Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 14 through verse 18, uh, we are instructed how to do that, how to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So think of these instructions here as instructions in, in that direction for us. And, and so... Um, and so here Paul is giving us instructions in relation to that. And so uh, uh, allow me to just briefly uh, give a bit of an overview of, of these verses uh, here in Romans chapter 12 as it relates to that. And so the first thing he said, he uh, tells us, and I'm going to say it a little bit differently than it is uh, stated here, but I'm trying to give interpretation uh, to what Paul is saying by doing so. So the first thing that, that Paul says in, in, is that we should come, overcome their animosity by being kind and friendly toward them. That's verse 14. You see, Paul here gives instructions that reinforce the doctrine of non-resistance. And you're, you're aware of that. You, you probably thought of that as, as I read that passage. Uh, and so he is reinforcing uh, the doctrine of non-resistance, but I say that this is not so that we can practice the doctrine of non-resistance as much, but, but it, it's for the purpose of drawing men and women to Christ. Consider it, uh, this in, from that context. So we overcome their animosity by being kind and friendly toward them. Verse, verse 14. Uh, verse 15, we have empathy. We, we express empathy with them when life throws difficulties into their pathway. And in Northwestern Ontario, we have lots of opportunity to do this kind of thing by doing many, many, many funerals. <laughs> and and when, uh, uh, when people were in vulnerable times, uh, that was a strategic time to share the gospel with them and, and, and speak to them of the hope of eternal life. And basically, that's, that's what I would do in, in funerals because many of these funerals were, were of, of unbelievers. So what do you do in preaching messages uh, at funerals of unbelievers? Well, uh, for me, uh, it was preaching the gospel in that context in a way that, that would show that the, the possibility of having the hope of eternal life for them. So, uh, so uh, in times when you can express empathy with them, uh, when life throws difficulties in their pathway. And then in verse 16, I, it seems to me that he is saying, place yourself on the same level with them. Don't, don't have an attitude of superiority toward them. Uh, you know, this, uh, this goes a long ways in breaking down barriers between us and our non-Christian neighbor. So, uh, uh, you know, put your, be sure you place yourself on the same level with them. And then verse 17, return good for evil without a show of religiosity or, or a holier-than-thou attitude uh, when, when, those, uh, when you have that opportunity and, and when... Uh, uh, 
others make life difficult for you. And, and then also in verse uh, 17, it seems to me, he continues to say, but be upfront and straightforward without being belligerent toward them. <coughs> and so you can frankly uh, speak to them about their need and, and their, need, their need of the gospel. And then in number six, in verse 18, uh, he uh, instructs us to go the second mile in, in living peaceably <coughs> alongside of them. And uh, when, I, when I read that, I, I always think <coughs> of what took place. When uh, we moved from northwestern Ontario, where we've been for 35 years, and moved to Catholic Virginia. <coughs> and uh, I, I recognized that I was wondering, you know, if the Lord still has something for me to do. <laughs> uh, as I sort of moved down in, in retirement, I was 68 years old at that time. And uh, so I was wondering, what, you know, uh, what it'd be like. Uh, and. Uh, uh, what the Lord has in store for us, but it, I found it interesting we, when we moved to to uh, Catlett and uh, began building our house that one of our neighbors uh, was uh, uh, the the man had had a was was a drunkard. He, he had a problem with uh, he, you know he was an alcoholic and uh, and my relationship with him got off on a bad start. <laughs> It sort, of, it sort of happened inadvertently, but it did get off on a bad start. Uh, and so, um, but uh, uh, I, I attempted to correct that with, with uh, Chris Hamilton, who was that neighbor, and, uh, and, and things got better. But, but then, uh, and then I had the opportunity to do what well, some of the things that this passage tells us to do. To, uh, to, to do good to them. And uh, he, uh, he, because of his uh, uh, alcoholism, he had problem uh, uh, keeping enough wood uh, for, 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 for his heat for the winter. And, and so uh, he wanted some of my wood and uh, I, you know, uh, that I had to cut and, and stash and, and, and uh, and racked up for, for my own use, and, and he needed some, but uh, I saw the wisdom of uh, beginning to supply him with some wood. And so uh, uh, our friendship developed, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, to make a long story short, uh, Chris, our neighbor, uh, he, um, his liver gave out, and uh, he was in need of a transplant because of his alcoholism. And, and, um, and, and so uh, 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 he was, uh, so I got a call uh, from the family uh, when he was in the uh, Charlottesville uh, University Hospital one afternoon uh, telling me that Chris, they were there with their father and their father was, uh, was on his deathbed. And, and, uh, and so... Um, uh, so Ed and I made our way as quickly as we could to uh, Charlottesville to the University Hospital. Walked into his room and, and Chris was sitting up and he was he was aware of his surroundings, although he couldn't talk anymore. 
And when and and so uh, there he was with his family gathered around him. His uh, alienated wife was was holding his hand, and uh, and, and so uh, I, I I just felt that the, the moment was short. And so I knelt down in front of him and got on the level with his eyes. And I looked into his eyes and I saw that he recognized me. And I, and I, as, I as simply as I could and as quickly as I could, I, I, I shared the gospel with him one more time. I had done it before, but I shared the gospel with him in, in very simple terms, just the best way I knew how. And, and he couldn't respond, but I encouraged him just in his heart to respond to the Lord. The Lord recognizes that kind of response. And, and so uh, I, I want to tell you, I'll, I'll never forget how he stared into my eyes in those moments. And, and, uh, and I was finished, and I, I laid my hand on him and prayed for him. And about that time, the nurse came in and gave him a shot, and, and he went into a coma and, and died that night. I don't know where Chris Hamilton is tonight, but but it taught me a lesson. You know, my my relationship with him started off in animosity, and uh, and and so uh, these instructions here uh, are very powerful to me because I I saw them making a difference in my relationship, so I could share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And it seems to me uh, that that is. Uh, uh, it seems to me that the Apostle Paul is uh, giving this in that context. And so uh, uh, here we have, uh, and so then Paul goes on here in verses 19 through 21 to tell us how to respond to persecution or when you are mistreated or taken advantage of. And, uh, you know, we all know so little about the reality of, of, of real persecution. But these instructions flesh out what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Don't take justice in your own hands. Give place unto wrath. Return good for evil. And uh, overcome evil with good. This is a powerful challenge to each one of us. But the, the, uh, the, the subject matter that I, I really want to address with you this evening uh, comes out of uh, Romans chapter 13, the, the Christian's relationship with civil government. And, and I'd like to read that passage. I'm just going to read the whole passage. And so would you stand with me again as I read this passage, and then we will look at it. Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of, of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this, for, for this cause we pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. 
tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehensive in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for it is our... For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, nor in chambering and wantonness, but nor in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. You may be seated. The first question I would ask as we look at this uh, text, this passage here in Romans chapter 13, is why does Paul address this subject? seems to me in order to understand why Paul addresses this subject, we need to understand the relationship uh, of the church in Rome to the Roman Empire during the first century. Uh, you know, the, the pagan Roman Empire barely tolerated the followers of Christ in their midst, especially in the city of Rome, the capital city of the empire. Whenever persecution broke out against the church, the church in Rome got the brunt of it because of, because of living in, in, the, in the capital city of the world at that particular time. Thus, there seems to be several reasons why Paul would address this subject as to what believers' attitude and relationship should be towards civil government. Uh, because, for uh, number one, the, the, the political climate in Rome was fickle and uncertain at best. You know, Nero was the emperor of Rome in the, from AD 54 to AD 68. And, and Nero was an unstable, self-indulgent tyrant. And about ten years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, Christians were going to die at the hands of Nero in very cruel ways. Uh, he would have them tied to poles, pull pits over them, and light them up as torches to light up his garden. In fact, about ten years after Paul wrote this, he himself would be beheaded shortly before Nero himself committed suicide in A.D. 68. So in, in, in view of the fickle political climate of the day, it seems to me Paul felt compelled here in Romans 13 to give direction to the Christians in Rome what their attitude should be towards civil government. So it was a very pertinent uh, uh, instruction that, that Paul was giving here. But secondly, also, the, the, uh, the Jewish population had been exiled and banished from the city of Rome about ten years earlier during the time of Claudius, who, who was the emperor at that time, because the Jews had rioted against the Roman government. 
And so Claudius, as the emperor, exiled all Jews from the city of Rome. They had to leave. They had to flee. And because of the Jewish Christians were not differentiated from other Jews, they also were banished with the rest of the Jewish population at that particular time, according to Acts chapter 18 and verse 2. They were expelled from Rome during that time and also and fled, uh, had to flee. Um, this is why Paul met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth during his second missionary journey, because they had to leave Rome, which was their home, because of, of this, what was taking place. So there was, no doubt, a lot of uncertainty among the believers how they should respond to civil government. <laughs> you know, the question may have been whether they should follow the Jewish way of responding to civil authority or, or what. So Paul here feels impelled in Romans 13 to give important instructions about how Christians to respond and relate to what we call the authority of the state. So here in, uh, in Romans 13, the Christian's responsibility to civil authority is explained, especially in the first seven, uh, first seven verses. Here Paul helps us get a proper perspective on the authority of civil government, that the authority that civil government has over us. So in, so in order to get a proper perspective of this, we need to understand, uh, first of all, that there were two kinds of authority. <coughs> the word power, as is used here in, uh, in, in these first uh, several verses, is, uh, it's used five times in the first three verses here in the King James Version. Uh, but the Greek word translated power here in the, New, in the King James is actually the word, uh, the Greek word is authority. And, but there are two words for the word authority in, in the Greek language. And the, the one word for authority is kratos. And basically, the word kratos is used to speak of absolute authority or authority that only God has, has or exercises. Absolute authority. Now, the Roman Empire thought he exercised absolute authority. But in actuality, he didn't exercise absolute authority. Only God, sovereign, holy, merciful, can can execute can uh, can uh, show absolute authority can can uh, 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 express that absolute authority in a proper way. Uh, and, but the, so the second word for authority is exousia, and and the word is used five times here in the first three verses, uh, referring to the authority that civil governments or authority. Uh, uh, have an exercise. And so exosia speaks of delegated authority, delegated power or authority, rather than a, uh, absolute authority. <clears throat> and so we understand that delegated authority, exosia, uh, is, is limited authority, can only be rightly exercised under God's absolute authority and in according to his divine mandate. So, uh, we understand from this that civil government 
in Romans chapter 13, in the first two verses, exercises delegated authority, not absolute authority. This has two implications for us, according to verses 1 and 2. And so the first one is that the powers that be are ordained of God. That's the way Paul starts out in verse 1. This means that civil government does not have absolute authority, uh, and, uh, but it has, it has only delegated, limited authority as far as God is concerned. Jesus had an interesting dialogue with Pilate in, in uh, John chapter 19. Uh, because the Jews came and, and were accusing Jesus and asking for the death sentence. And, and Pilate began to examine him, and, and Jesus was absolutely quiet. He didn't respond to any of these accusations. He didn't even respond to Pilate. And Pilate said to him, Why are you quiet? Why don't you say something? Don't you understand that I have authority to put you to death? <laughs> And Jesus spoke a powerful word there. said, you, you have no authority except that which is given to you. And at that moment, Pilate understood something that caused him to seek for Jesus' release. Isn't that interesting? Read the account. But delegated authority. Yes. Uh, usually, when a civil government begins to exercise absolute authority, it becomes tyrannical and oppressive. <laughs> so, we understand, first of all, that the powers that be are ordained of God. That's what Paul says in verse 1. Secondly, uh, so what that means, the, the effect of that is that to resist civil rulers or governments is to resist God. Uh, and, and so... Uh, the fact that the state gets its mandate to rule from God doesn't mean that the church and state are one because each has their distinctive mandates. Uh, yes, we believe that the church and the state are separate, but as Montgomery Boyce put it, this doesn't mean the separation of God and state <laughs> because God assumes absolutely absolute authority even over the state. So we, when, when Paul says here that uh, those who resist civil rulers resist God, we understand this to be a qualified statement, and, uh, but I'll deal with that later. Uh, because uh, uh, sometimes, uh, as followers of Christ, in, in, as you look at the history of the church, uh, sometimes the followers of Christ have to resist civil government. When, when they asked, when the civil government asked Peter and John to stop teaching Jesus about Jesus, Peter said, well, you decide what is right to obey you rather than God. And so, but uh, when, we re- when we do resist civil government, we need to be prepared to, uh, to experience their vehement uh, uh, displeasure of us. We know very little about what, what this means. But folks, the time may be coming in, in the years ahead. I might not see it in my lifetime, but you and some of your children might, might see it. When, 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 when we as believers need to stand up 
and be good of us rather than to the civil government. But uh, uh, we, we don't know that that, that, that is in the Lord's hands. I, just a little bit later here, I, I want to talk about what happens when kingdoms clash. That is, that's what happens when civil government uh, uh, exercises absolute authority and uh, demands of believers things that please, displease God. And then, then kingdoms clash. And I want to talk about that just in a little, little bit. But here we have uh, God's purpose and mandate for civil government given here in verses 3 and 4. Number one, it is to control rampant evil in a sinful society. Number two, it is to protect law-abiding citizens. That's verse 4. Paul admonishes us uh, to pray for, for our government that we may be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You know, Western, our Western democracies, we live, which we live in, uh, has done a relatively good job uh, in, as, as it relates to this, in allowing us the freedom to, to serve God. But with the erosion of moral values, this protection is diminishing, as I see it, in today's world. And, and it seems to me that we need to be prepared for that. But the, uh, the, the third uh, purpose of civil government is defined in verse 4 is to control and punish evil by the use of the force of law. Civil authorities are to execute wrath. This means use punishment upon him that does evil. As he bears not the sword in vain, implies the use even of capital punishment in the administration of justice, especially when there is the shedding of innocent blood, according to Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. So, but then in verses 5 through 7, Paul gives the Christians responsibility to civil government. And I would just like to mention uh, uh, what Paul says about that and point out what Paul says about that. In verse 5, Paul says, Be subject. Be subject. Paul began this section by saying very succinctly in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. The rationale being that these higher powers are ordained of God, and by not submitting to these secular powers, you are in essence not obeying or submitting yourself to God. So here in verse 7, Paul now repeats the injunction by saying it is necessary or important that you, you, that you subject, meaning submit yourself to the powers that be as much as is possible. And you should do so not out of fear of punishment, but for conscience sake. You know, I... I um, an interesting thing happens when um, happens when you honor and subject yourself to those in authority over you. I uh, I, I discovered that when I was uh, when we were building our retirement home in Chapman, Virginia. I had visited one of the uh, uh, Mennonite contractors to get some information on how to go about things and. And, and he informed me that there were three building inspectors in Fauquier County 
Two were good and easy to get along with, and one was mean. And so uh, I wondered how this was going to go. <laughs> but as I began building, and the building inspectors came out, and I began to, to talk to them, and, and you know, by the time we were finished, I never discovered who the mean one was. You know why? Because I assured them that I wanted to follow their instructions. And, and I had questions for them when they came out, even though I sometimes knew some of the answers to these questions. For instance, as a mason, I knew that you should not put masonry right against uh, wood when it comes to building a fireplace. And you have to stay a certain distance. And I asked him, so how far should I, does, do you require that I stay away from wood with my masonry when I built my fireplace? He said, I don't know, but I'll go out and check the books. And he was out there for a half an hour at least. <laughs> I thought he'd know the answer just like that. But he went and checked the books and came back and told me. And so all along the way, I, I, I just you know, kept doing this kind of thing. And by the time we were finished, I never found out who the mean one was. I sure, I'm sure he was there. <laughs> but this is what Paul is talking about. These subjects. And then he says, they tripped Well, it's tax time. <laughs> and you know what that means. It, means. it simply means we pay our taxes. And there's no indication in this passage that Christian has the responsibility to hold the government accountable for the way it uses the taxes. And then thirdly, said we should properly honor and respect the governmental authority. Because they are God's ministers, he reminds us, which means that somehow in the sovereign rule of God, he rules over even in even he overrules even in the affairs of secular government. And so, uh, uh, but then, uh, allow me just to, uh, to reflect on, uh, on, on what happens when kingdoms clash. You know, the, uh, you're aware, and I'm aware of the fact, that the ethics of the kingdom of God limits the believer's subjection to and involvement in the affairs of civil government under which uh, which jurisdiction he lives. You understand what I'm saying? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, argues that being Paul approves the magistrate's use of the sword, this must justify the Christian's participation in the affairs of civil government as well as in the wars that it engages. This is a normal argument put forth by those who justify uh, the Christian's participation in war. But Jesus indicated to Pilate in John 18:36 that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and my kingdom, Jesus said, and the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is what he was talking about. And it's inevitable. It, I, as I see it, it's inevitable that these two kingdoms will clash at various times, and they have in history, and I believe they will again. But God, how God overrules in the kingdom of this world, full of sin and unconverted people, 
is different than how he exercises his lordship over his kingdom and over the church. We understand that. So allow me just to put forth uh, several difficult concepts and principles to guide us when kingdoms clash. Let me first of all just say this very succinctly, because uh, uh, I, I believe we need to have some of these things reinforced uh, in our minds. And, and one of them is that there is no such thing as a Christian nation. The only theocracy that ever existed was the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In the, since since uh, in the New Testament, there is no theocracy. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. All the nations, civil governments of this world are part of the kingdom of this world over which God rules with a rod of iron, it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 27. Uh, and, and so, uh, yes, uh, America is and always was a godless nation. Now, it's true that there were certain Christian principles uh, practiced in, in government, and uh, that, that is what has allowed us uh, our freedoms, but, but uh, it, there, there is no such thing as a Christian nation, even if it claims to be one nation under God. I'm, I'm reading several very interesting books in that, that uh, uh, give the, uh, the history of how the Puritans and, and the Pilgrims came to America and, and the history of how our nation developed. I find it very, very interesting and, and insightful because all along the way, while, while uh, uh, many of the, the, uh, the people that immigrated at the beginning of our, our nation thought they were going to have a Christian nation, but as you continue to read, you, continue, you begin to understand that no, there's really no thing, no such thing as a Christian nation. From the New Testament perspective, and so a, a believer's prior obedience and loyalty lies with the kingdom of God when the two kingdoms clash. And that is given in Acts chapter four and proven in Acts chapter four, verse nineteen, and chapter five, and verse twenty-eight. But, but such things should not be said with arrogance and defiance. The, the things that, that the, the, the Apostle Peter said, that we should serve God rather than, than man. That dare not be said with arrogance, but it, it can be said. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego response to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 has always been the true believer's response to the threat of persecution that came about when the two kingdoms clashed. Because uh, they said, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're prepared. I mean, yeah, we're, we're not going to worship your idols. And we're prepared to die 
But, but uh, if God sees fit, He can deliver us. <laughs> that is, in essence, what they were saying. And God delivered them. My question is, are we prepared to die for the sake of following the Lord Jesus Christ when kingdoms clash? Just recently, I was led to preach a message at Catholic in relation to what it means to suffer our call to suffering as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We, we haven't suffered a lot. But that time may come in a drastic kind of way. Most of the persecutions in the history of the church was the result of the clash of kingdoms. Article 6 is the Schleitheim Confession of Faith put together by Swiss brethren as that is a good explanation of you of the use of the sword by civil governments as designated by Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse 4. This is what it says. We are agreed as follows concerning the sword. The sword is ordained of God outside of the perfection of Christ. That's a good statement. It punishes and puts to death the wicked and guards and protects the good. In, in the law, the sword was ordained for the punishment of the wicked and for their death. And the same sword is now ordained to be used by the worldly magistrates. Well, I consider that to be a good statement of faith. So when kingdoms clash, or, uh, what I'm reinforcing here this evening is that when kingdoms clash, and kingdoms will clash, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, then we need to be prepared to suffer and be a safe truth of God. Now, I would like to close this evening by looking at the last six verses of Romans chapter 12, chapter 13. These are the concluding verses of Paul's exposition of the, uh, as it relates to the Christians' relationship to civil authority, to civil governments. And I find it interesting. I find Paul powerfully appeals uh, as to the, the ultimate duties of citizenship for those who are followers of Christ. And I find that these two appeals that Paul makes here uh, in, in these last six verses, uh, as to the ultimate duties of a citizen, very intriguing and very challenging. I don't know if you thought about it as you read this passage, but allow me just to share a few uh, things in closing in relation to that. The first directive that you have uh, here in, in conclusion of Romans chapter 13 is, uh, is, is verses 8 through 10. And, and here Paul takes us back to the second of the two greatest commandments, which is to love our neighbor. And so uh, Paul says uh, two things. He doesn't talk or give the commandment, but it, it's there if you, if you read it. So he says two things. The first thing he says is love your neighbor. In other words, he said, owe no man anything 
but to love. That's verse 8. And, and what, I, what I hear Paul saying here, that love to others is an unpayable debt. You always owe on this debt of love. <laughs> you never can say, well, I've loved enough. <laughs> right? So Paul uh, tells us, verse, verse 8, Oh, no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Love of the neighbor, that's the second uh, uh, mandate here, or the second thing he says about this matter of loving your neighbor. He says, the love of neighbor fulfills the law, verses 8 through 10. You know, our love for our neighbor is the fulfillment of the, of the moral law as it relates to our relationship with others. Because love for your neighbor will keep you from committing adultery, killing, stealing, lying, coveting. And I'm just saying what Paul says here. Or any other relational sins in verses 10 through 11. And love for neighbor will keep you from doing any harmful thing to your neighbor. And I find that very interesting that Paul concludes with this uh, powerful mandate to, to love one another, to love our neighbor. But then I find the second appeal even to be more powerful, which you find in, in verses uh, 11 through 14. And I, I puzzled at, at a length of time why, 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 why Paul finishes off with, with, with this particular uh, uh, mandate uh, that he gives here in, in, the, in these uh, uh, three verses. Why does Paul... To, to spiritual alertness and spiritual vitality, and that's exactly what it is. Uh, he, so he, he concludes his instructions in our relationship to civil government to, uh, to, to tell us that we should live a vital and a dynamic Christian life. And this is why the, this call to spiritual alertness uh, is given in the context of our relationship as Christ followers to the government, uh, government under which we live. Remember that the church in Rome was living under intense stress with Nero as the emperor of the Roman Empire. It wasn't a question if they are going to face persecution, but, it was, but when they were going to face persecution and suffer for their faith. So how do you respond to this kind of suffering? How will we respond to this kind of suffering when it comes? In essence, I hear Paul saying that the best way to respond is, to, is, is by living all out for Jesus. It is not a time of compromise, but for living a life that is totally committed to Christ, to live as though the Lord was about to return, to return, and all of this is included in what he says here in this final uh, short passage. You see, the darker the night, the brighter your light needs to shine. And this comes through as a call to spiritual alertness. In other words, I hear Paul saying, be aware of the times we're living in, the moral and spiritual condition of the age, Live in the awareness that the return of Christ is at hand. Our salvation, our final salvation is near. The night is far spent. The eternal day is at hand. 
Cast off any works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Deal with any sin in your life. Don't be lulled into complacency. It's not time to compromise, to give in to the spirit of the age. Live lives that are transparent, honest, as, uh, honest before the, as, as, is, as in the day. Live honestly as in the day, if I could say it right. Don't absorb the values of the age you're living in. Live counterculturally. And so you have this call to total commitment to Christ. He had given that call in the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. And now he gives it again in a different kind of way. And I wanted us to see that. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't coddle the flesh, your sinful propensity. Be overcomers. Live victoriously in the world in which you live. Because it's divinely possible. And may I say it's only divinely possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow me to close just to read that last section again. Verse of beginning of verse 11. And that knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the folk or the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. God bless you.